the diminishing returns of online advertising, and innovation lessons from the Grateful Dead. This is episode 68 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I am Mark Ramsey. And I am Tom Asacker. Tom, the diminishing returns of online advertising. We could go on and on about this forever. Let's not and, do that. <laughs> and in fact, we're, we're, we're actually reviewing an article which kind of does go on and on about it forever. It's from a publication I've never heard of. You turned me on to this called Real Life, um, which sounds like not a lot of people want to read it. Um, and the article is called Diminishing Returns, Online Advertising's Dependence on surprise, accelerates its own instability. Boy, you could just hear the people flock to that article, can't you? (laughs) (laughs) That's why nobody flocks to real life. That's why we're all just watching TV all the time. Well, bear with us, uh, listeners of the world, because there is some actual interesting content in here. I want to start getting into it because I think eventually we'll get to it. Here's some of the stuff they talk about here. Pivot to video is more about advertisers' ongoing search for a sustainable ad format, one that doesn't end up proving its own ineffectiveness or exhausting its novelty. You can hear where this is coming from. Right. Americans appear accustomed to tolerating and even enjoying ads that resemble TV commercials. Nearly four of ten of them watch the Super Bowl more for the commercials than for the game itself, according to one survey, which, you know, I love surveys that use people's enjoyment of ads in, super, in the Super Bowl as somehow representative of something larger and more representative. Oh, right? there's a lot of things in here that are stretching it like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you mean the one that references a 2009 New York Times article oh, cited goodness, showing that, that people enjoy television shows more with ad breaks than without them? That was unbelievable. Yeah, that was unbelievable. And I, you know, I don't even know where to go with that other than to say... I think that could be undercut really easily with a couple of other uh, studies that are a little uh, 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 more scientifically based. And, oh, by the way, 2009 is not 2017, but whatever. (laughs) So uh, the author goes on. It's a different story with conventional online ads. People tend to experience them as irritating interruptions rather than a complementary form of content. (laughs) No kidding. Adding a sort of rhythm to media consumption flow, unlike print or TV ads, Online advertising often introduces an unwanted element of multimedia, overlaid boxes or auto-playing videos or something like this. It's an aggressive approach. It blares at you, etc. And it's interesting that, you know, I finally gave in, Tom. I didn't mention this to you, but like a week or two ago, there was one uh, site that I like, one of the entertainment sites, uh, the entertainment news sites, that had these, you know, site takeovers that just, you go to your content and boom, all of a sudden... It's, you know, Game of Thrones, and it's a Game of... And I can't... Where's my content? Where's the X? How do I get out of this? And it would happen every time I'd go to the site. So finally, I said, that's it. I Googled Adblocker. Uh, I added in the plugin to Chrome. And Tom, it has changed my life. It has... (laughs) I am not overstating. It has changed my life. So far, I'm at 20,000 ads blocked. Oh my goodness. And this is about this is about 1 to 2 weeks, 20,000 ads. It has seriously changed my life. And the best part is that it also blocks those stupid outbrain ads at the end of the content. You know the ones that say yep. this is what this is what Jenna Bush looks like now, you're not going to believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it blocks all that correctly recognizing that those turn out to be ads. This so, episode of Media Unplugged is brought to you <laughs> by Adblocker. 
Ad block. <laughs> the greatest plug-in for Chrome you've ever seen. And by the way, it can't block a thing that you will hear in this show. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, according to a web developer, the piece goes on, advertising is like a disease. It takes people time to develop immunity and resistance. <laughs> Online users eventually adapt to any approach for capturing their attention or changing their behavior, which forces advertisers to continually modify tactics to remain viable. In 1994, a staggering 44% of people who saw the first banner ad clicked on it. Today, a good click-through rate is anything north of 0.05%. Right. And it goes on to say that it's not all that better in, uh, in video. Um, each new development came not necessarily because it would be more effective, but because the effectiveness of the earlier approaches had measurably waned. Mm. It talks about a news site. And it says on, on news sites, for example, advertisements are beginning to look more like the articles, while the articles are increasingly discussed internally in marketing terms, clicks, time spent on the page, length of scrolling, etc. On the contemporary Internet, it is difficult to find a form of content that does not serve mainly as an advertisement for itself, a whispered plea to keep engaging. It is colorful, isn't it? It is. You know, part of the problem is, is the way that we're looking at the Internet, like as a medium. The internet is an ecosystem. It, I mean, beyond thinking of it as a, as a complex, interconnected system, it is a, like a biological community <laughs> of interacting organisms in their physical environment. So if that's true, I mean, think about something. Would you drive through someone's neighborhood blasting an advertising message through a truck-mounted loudspeaker, interrupting their reading, TV viewing, their conversations. No. Why are we doing this online? Because we're not viewing it like a neighborhood, like an ecosystem. So mm -hmm. if we started looking at it differently, maybe we wouldn't, well. I don't. Well, but wait a minute. Isn't I, I, I that guess the same thing we do on television, on radio, on outdoor, on newspaper? Isn't that the same thing? Yeah, because we know, because TV's a medium, newspaper's a medium, we know what people are doing, and so mm -hmm. we say, okay, they'll, they'll tolerate if we throw these ads in here. And if they don't, then, you know, we'll have to change something. But when you look at the Internet, what are people doing? I mean, they're interacting, they're shopping, they're TV viewing, they're reading, they're having conversations. And people are messing the whole experience up. That's the problem. Even when we advertise on TV... We didn't try to screw up the entire experience. Mm -hmm. Somebody was looking at it, saying, look, we're not going to ruin this TV show by doing this. Okay, then we better do it this way then if we don't want to ruin well, it. Well, here's what certainly is true. It certainly is true that I can't recall the last time I felt watching, you know, commercial television. Um, the way I felt when I went to therap.com to see an article that I had clicked on and up opens a full screen Game of Thrones and it obscures my ability to approach my content. I can't find the X button. I don't know if it's going to start to play a video spontaneously. I know. And it is. It's like you've literally been hijacked. And that experience really isn't comparable to what happens on television. On television, you're interrupted, but you're not really hijacked, right? Oh, no. Listen... Be, to see the the experience of anything it is going to depend, especially in, in the marketplace, is going to be depend on how it's funded, where the money comes from. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and to me right now, much of the experience of the internet now, you know what it's kind of like? It's like those carnival games, you know, where you try to win the big stuffed animal by knocking over mm-hmm. these weighted milk cans, you know, yep. or, or you're supposed to sink a basketball in an undersized hoop. It's all mm-hmm. entertaining, but it's rigged. It's like Las Vegas. So people need to understand how this is all rigged and why this is all happening. And should they expect some kind of elegant winning experience? It depends. It depends mm-hmm. what sites you're on, right? I think this piece kind of, get, kind of gets into this. It goes on, the main engine of driving new advertising technology is the development of new metrics, new ways to monitor ad exposure and user responsiveness. The more poorly current ads perform, the more room there is to tell convincing stories about future advertising technology, which of course will require new forms of surveillance. <laughs> And then they go on to talk about how that relates to the pivot to video and the contention, which I I don't know if I completely agree with, is basically that, and here's the quote, even though users may not want more video content or more of their content published in video form, the advertising industry pushes publishers in that direction anyway. As a result of this unified effort, overall viewability of video goes up and online ads seem to be quote-unquote working. So I think what the suggestion here is, is that it's not that we want more video online, it's that we're getting more video online and thus we're consuming more video online and the consumption of more of what's available is convincing those who create what's available that we want it more. (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, it's on the shelf so we buy it, and if it weren't on the shelf, we wouldn't buy it. I don't know that I completely agree with that argument. Well, look, someone is in charge of the experience. If the money comes before the experience, right? So that you get this ecosystem, and whoever the website is, the content provider or whatever they're providing that's, that also has advertisers involved in whatever's being provided, They have to work together on this thing, but somebody's got to lead. And to me, it's the people whose website you click on that have Mm -hmm. to lead the experiential. I mean, let me give you a personal example. So I started fooling around with Amazon's book marketing service for the Kindle Mm -hmm. version of my my novel, right? So I I set this thing up. They have a pay-per-click budget. In other words, tell us how much a day maximum you'll spend for, for clicks total. So I'm I messing around. I put, I'll spend $10 a day max. Let's see what mm-hmm. happens. And I pick some keywords that determine where this ad will be displayed on Amazon. Now, Amazon determines what the ad's going to look like. All right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't even have any way of adjusting it. I, it's going to be the image of my book, the cover of my book, and a few lines of text, which, by the way, they approve before they launch this thing. Mm-hmm. And it's in order to serve the customer's interests. So, you, you know when you're looking for a book on Amazon, down below it'll have these a little string of books with little, little book covers, right? Yes. All those mm-hmm. little sponsored ads. So here's, let me tell you what's happened. So here's the results. This has been going on for like three weeks. I've got 99,000 impressions, mm-hmm. meaning it loaded on, on a page somewhere. Right. 86 clicks. Hmm. 22 cents per click. So I've spent $18.51. I sold seven books, which total about $70. So I can mm-hmm. see an ROI, right? It's obvious. And I've got yeah. total control. I can hit stop whenever I want on this. I don't have to worry about clickbait. Mm-hmm. 
because my sales are directly correlated to clicks. As soon as it's mm-hmm. not providing a decent ROI, I click a button and it stops. So I think this is the direction this has to go in, where the people who are, are serving up these websites, web pages, with whatever is on it, whether it's conversations with Facebook, whether it's buying products and services with Amazon, whether it's content with the New York Times, whatever it is, they need to take control of the customer experience. They have to tell the advertisers, this is what you're going to do. And then Mm -hmm. everybody's happy. Hmm. I see the chances of that happening as approaching zero. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then the consumer has to take control by not going to these websites that do these things we don't like, right? That's that's just what I did when I when I added AdBlock, and you know I, we've talked about it. How I've deliberately avoided doing that because I wanted to be in touch with you know the the nature of advertising online um, from a purely professional academic sense. But finally, I got fed up because one site got I got fed up with, and that punished every other site I went to. Well, this is, and this, it's also yep. this is what I was also, trying to tell you about Pandora. Yeah. Something pushed you over the edge, right? Is there's an edge for everyone. Mm-hmm. That's what we have to watch out for when we're not paying attention to the experience. Because all of a sudden, we, we say, where did everybody go? Well, they've been pushed over the edge. Maybe not by you. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, once they go over, they're over forever. They're why, not should I ever take, why should I ever take that ad block off? By the way, it's interesting to note that there is the occasional stray site that says, oh, no. You know, we require advertising. you got to whitelist us in order to read this. And then in my mind, I'm doing the math, mm-hmm. which is, is, my, is it worth whitelisting this site? Am I really going to be here much? Do I really care that much about this article? And i got to tell you, three out of four times, the answer is no. Exactly. So I want to read a couple more things from this just because I think it's interesting. Uh, whether there are metrics, wherever there are metrics, there are efforts to optimize for them. Advertisers continually tweak their approach as they chase higher numbers. A-B testing to see which shade of blue drives the most clicks, etc. But the result is not necessarily a greater ability to track what works, but an inversion thereof, consistently redefining what works in terms of what can be tracked in a kind of self-reinforcing tautology. (laughs) Metrics don't uncover silver bullet techniques of persuasion. They merely drive more and more elaborate metrics. That is so true. Absolutely. Because we can see that playing out. I've made the argument to people recently, people who are trying to establish their success on Facebook. This is the thing I talked to you about before we started the show today. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you've got likes, shares, and comments. Those are my metrics. That's what Facebook gives me. A good post is one that generates lots of likes, shares, and comments. Well, Good for whom? <laughs> yeah. Good for whom? Good for Facebook, unquestionably. But how does it further your business goals? That's what I was well, trying to tell you about how direct yeah. the Amazon thing is. That's right. It's totally direct. I see that. One last quote from this. A changeadvertising.org study from last year found that more than 80% of the top news sites employed some sort of, quote, content ads. Only 46% of ads they hosted went to legitimate advertisers trying to sell products. 26% went to clickbait. Um, this takes advertising logic to its absurd conclusion in which ads serve to persuade audiences only to consume more ads as if the only possible product were the advertising itself, right? Exactly. Hence your point. Yeah, look, it's going to come down to smart advertisers saying, look, I want to see results, whatever those results are, and they've got to be measurable and it's going to come down to smart website hosts 
whatever they're doing, content providers as well, that says, uh-uh. First and foremost, we're interested in the experience of the people coming here because we don't want to lose them. One of the presentations that I that I give to industry groups uh, begins with a with the social media fail example, and I go through the metrics for in a particular event I was involved in, where the social media stats were through the roof. It was trending on Twitter, you name it, just huge numbers. And then I show the ratings of the event, for which the whole effort was designed, and the ratings are anemic. I know. And you know, I make the obvious point, which is you can actually win at social media and lose at business, unless you're watching the right metrics. And none of these you know, none of these uh, third-party providers care about those metrics which matter to you, uh, the business. <laughs> Look, like I said, it's Vegas. You can win at being entertained at Vegas, but you are not going home with more money in your pocket. <laughs> but there's a great buffet. <laughs> You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Innovation lessons from the Grateful Dead. Boy, oh boy, did I have mixed feelings about this one, Tom. I mean, first of all, <laughs> You know, and I've written my fair share of this kind of article, I should say. This is from LinkedIn slash... Um, I know. Uh, I guess it's LinkedIn. Um, I, you know, by attaching, by finding kernels of truth in things that are right in front of our face, that even probably the um, folks who committed the truths that are being referenced in the article <laughs> would, would not see themselves reflected in any of these truths as quoted. But... Anyway, there are a bunch of lessons here. Before I get into the lessons, did you, I mean, I, I, you found this particularly compelling. I'm interested in why. <laughs> did you see the documentary? No, I didn't see that. I right. had it, but I, I, right. I know it's on Netflix, but it's, it's, uh, on Amazon, it's about two think, hours. Isn't it? Or Amazon, whatever. It's yeah. two hours too long for me. All right. You'll, you'll enjoy it if you, I think you'll enjoy it. But look, I enjoyed it. Like you, <laughs> because I saw the thing. So I, I think the author either... He viewed it through a slightly distorted lens, or to your point, he just used it to make his particular points about innovation. For example, mm -hmm. I'm not sure the dead's true lesson regarding innovation is something businesses can you know dance with, you know, L like tripping on acid and letting go of control. That was the biggest lesson <laughs> from watching that <laughs> documentary. Well, maybe tripping on acid is metaphorical. No, I don't think it was. And you know what? <laughs> It's it's like the it, it it's the it's the first stanza from their song playing in the band tells you everything that the dead thought about innovation. It it says, you know, some folks trust to reason, others trust to might. I don't trust to nothing, but I know it come out right. So <laughs> that's that that was the dead. You know what I mean? Isn't that every kind of um, bedroom or garage uh, startup? Uh, under the sun? Yeah, pretty much. But it was theirs way beyond startup, you yeah. see? Because Jerry Garcia, they would continually trip on acid. <laughs> so he never, he never wanted to take any kind of control on anything. That was like a big, big thing to them. Don't I, control I just, it. Yeah, any of these uh, stories which, you know, uses their anecdote, anecdote, something overwhelmingly successful then quote the success of the anecdote and say, see? <laughs> well, but see, he missed something when he was watching this because like even he writes in the article that, that the Grateful Dead's only care was the way their music connected with their audience. Mm -hmm. Now, listen, they knew that that was out of their control as well. I mean, Jerry Garcia once said, our strong suit 
is what we do, comma, and our audience, not what we do for our audience. Mm. Those are two very different concepts. He wasn't A-B testing songs. Mm -hmm. He didn't care. No, he didn't. Not at all. He cared about the audience and he cared about his music. But he wasn't about to create music for his audience. Right. That's that's a good point. That's something I don't think that this guy saw, or he didn't. Yeah, he. I don't know. You tell his, me. <laughs> his lesson one. No, I think you're absolutely right. His lesson. I mean, let's go through some of his lessons. I'll touch on them briefly because, again, they 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 could very easily have been created before anyone saw this documentary and then applied directly. Innovation number one. Innovation is an output, not an input. Fair enough. Although I would argue that if you don't have a culture that is um, uh, that welcomes innovation, that fosters innovation, that pursues innovation, that cares about in innovation, that values it, that rewards it, then you're not going to get any as an output. <laughs> no, that's right. The, the, the Grateful Dead were all about the input. Right. That's that was 100% input, in fact. Exactly. <laughs> Lesson two, decouple innovation from commercial interests. Well, okay, his point is... Sometimes stuff that's going to work down the road, you can't tell up front if it's going to work or not. Okay, that's fair. But, you know, what's also fair to say is you have to make choices in a world of scarce resources, uh, money, time, people. You have to make choices. So you need some mechanism, some means of, you know, uh, I think the important thing is, look, do a lot of experiments, do a lot of small experiments, let a lot of flowers bloom and see what blooms. Yep, exactly. Lesson three, solve key customer pain points. Well, <laughs> you know, I love his anecdote, which is, you know, people wanted tickets. They couldn't get tickets, so they'd send it in in self-addressed stamped envelopes, and somebody would send it back there. They solved a pain point. Well, okay, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not that impressed by that. Look, they didn't, Lesson, this is the point, though. See, the, 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 the dead, they, they loved the audience, and they loved what they did, and all they were trying to do was just, just spread the love. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They, so absolutely. Somebody, I'm so. just, my point is that there are you know, thousands of bands that are very much like that that aren't the Grateful Dead. Oh, and, no, I know. The cause and effect thing here is, is a little bit. Uh, <laughs> it is crazy. And then lesson four, of course, which is my favorite, Think Big which I've never heard that one before. Lesson five, embrace collective improvisation. Be open, listen. Okay. Mm, okay. Um, lesson six, diversity accelerates innovation. Okay, this is true, actually, and I think this is legit in the sense that, um, yeah, I mean, how many organizations have, be, have we been involved with where the groupthink is, is just stifling? Uh, the absence of input from outside ideas and outside thinkers Absolutely. is problematic. On the other hand, he says in this very same section, Lesson 6, Diversity Accelerates Innovation, the dead regularly cite their biggest mu musical influences as each other. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this is what I'm trying to say about these guys. If you look, if you look at what they did and you thought it was strategic, you, you're, you've lost your mind. There was nothing strategic about... Do you think that the Dreyful Dead strategically played a different song set at every show so that the regulars on, had to go on the gig you know, to see the next show because no, no two I think were, they were the same? I think they, they were purely reactive in everything they did. That, absolutely. So none of this. They did what they did because they wanted to do it. Yes. Were they obsessed with the experience, the music, 
the sound system, yeah, I mean, it was, it was like outrageous, ridiculous thing. That was the that was like one of the big highlights of the documentary was showing them stacking up these speakers like six stories high, you know, something that no one else did because they were obsessed with the experience and they were obsessed with this sense of community, this deep bond between the band and the audience. But their obsession was around letting them do what the hell they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You see, every so time what somebody is right. Every what what what, what is the innovation lesson then, Tom? What is the innovation lesson? Do what you want to do and let everybody else do what they want to do, and you'll be successful. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, That's, it sounds silly, but do what you desire. What drives mm-hmm. you from the inside out, not from A B metrics in. Mm-hmm. Do what turns you on. Spread it out there. And see if it turns other people on. If it does, make it easy for them. Let them come to the concerts and record things. Let them travel. Let them send in an envelope and send them a ticket back. Make it easy for them and desirable for them. Make it desirable for you. And then see if it clicks. If it does, you've got the Grateful Dead. If it doesn't, you've got these other 100,000 bands that are trying to figure (laughs) out how to be the Grateful Dead. Well, that's great advice. I wish somebody would write a book about that. Do you know anybody who's written a book about that? I tried. <laughs> Called I Am Keats, available wherever you buy bestsellers now. Exactly. I guess I should have been on a little bit more LSD. Who knows? <laughs> um, not enough. Uh, that was for your co-author. All right, Tom, it's time for, for Rants and Raves. Uh, well, can I go first? You can if you like, sure. Well, I thought I'd, st- I'd stay in keeping with the improv theme. Because I think that mm-hmm. I, I think that that was the biggest takeaway from that was the whole idea about improv, right, and connecting right. with other mm-hmm. people. So I read that Taco Bell and Lyft announced their test of what they call Taco Mode. Have you heard of this? Yes, I have heard of this. Okay, so from now, <laughs> so from nine at night to two in the morning, uh, on from Thursdays through Saturday nights, Lyft customers can choose Taco Mode on the Lyft <laughs> app, and then the you know the car icons. They become tacos. Okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. And then these people can have their driver head to the nearby Taco Bell, get their orders, redeem a coupon for a Doritos Loco Taco, and then head off to wherever the hell they're going. So mm-hmm. the Taco Bell's chief marketing officer, Marissa Thalberg, she said that the two companies teamed up to, quote, blow wind on this emerging behavior we're seeing in social, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> So here's my thing, back to the Grateful Dead, where everyone was happy. So is everyone happy here? So Mm -hmm. are the players happy and the audience happy? Hell no. If you went online, there was a Lyft driver who posted this comment. There's There's a Reddit thread titled, here's the title of the thread. Every once in a while, I think maybe Lyft does think about the drivers a little better than Uber. Then they pull shit like this. And this is what he writes. All just a quick stop requests are money losers. I'm getting paid $2.39 for this short ride. Now I have to spend 15 minutes in a Taco Bell drive-thru to make my car smell like fast food with no extra pay from Lyft. No thanks. Another driver wrote, I'm not dirtying, staining my van and making it smell like dead animals for a couple measly bucks before depreciation, risk, time, and taxes. Wow. The moral of the story, 
Know who's in your band. Who you need to play with to create your brand of music and try to include them in the improv process, right? Mm -hmm. As uh, the Grateful Dead's bass player, Phil Lesh, was quoted as saying in the documentary, this is collective improvisation. No one person could think all of this up themselves. Well, someone at Lyft did, and it's pretty discordant right now. Well, that's fascinating. I had heard the story, but I didn't hear any of that pushback. That never would have occurred to me, in fact. That's really amazing. What a great point. Otherwise, I thought it was because, of course, everybody's happy. Why wouldn't everybody be Except happy? Except for it's the more driver. Reasons, <laughs> it's more reasons to use Lyft. I mean, normally I would say, well, okay, but the driver, it's a, dry, it's a ride the driver wouldn't get. Uh, the dr ride might go to Uber instead. But as you know, as everyone knows, I have yet to find a Lyft driver who doesn't double as an Uber driver, which I think is part of the problem that, that Lyft has, right? Yeah, if it was a cab and that little timer was going click, 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 yeah, <laughs> but it's not. It's, uh, maybe it will one day. They finally figured out tipping at Uber, so maybe they'll get this uh, down. At maybe Lyft they as well. will. Well, I have a couple, and they're they're not too long. I think they're and they're both kind of uh, they're they're not rants, really. I oh, think. you're not going to do the you're not going to do the wax museum stuff. No, I've, I, you know <laughs> that was a ridiculous one. All I right. only do legitimate ones okay. when they come to wax museum. Anyone who tunes in saying, "Is he going to cover the Beyonce wax museum story?" You already know it. You don't need me to cover there it, right? There you go. Exactly. Game of Thrones reaches 45 million people with Snapchat lens. This is from Mobile Mark, and I found this interesting. Uh, HBO reached 45 million people with a Snapchat lens to promote season seven premiere of the hit series. The lens, which transformed selfies of Snapchatters into White Walker zombies, had a record 122 million impressions for a TV show-sponsored lens, Variety reported. So, you know, it's, it's good success. They ran in 16 countries on July 16, when the new season aired. Um, it was tremendously successful. And then, of course, the, um, the piece adds the obligatory. It's unclear how much of the record-breaking audience can be attributed to HBO investing in a Snapchat lens, given the massive promotion that went into Series 7. <laughs> so it's kind of a story that isn't a story at the same time. But right. what I found interesting about this was, why did this work? Well, okay, it was fun. It was cool. It was on Snapchat. It was in the right place at the right time. But, Tom, it was about personalizing the biggest event of the day. It was about personalizing the biggest event of the day. Exactly. In order to do that, you have to have the biggest event of the day. <laughs> that comes so in first, other words, right? <laughs> yeah, the content comes first. The magnetic, they couldn't have done this seven years ago for the first episode of season one. They can only do this now. Right. Um, so I think it's just a reminder that you can write about this wonderful thing, the Snapchat thing that reached all these people. <laughs> but... These people wanted to be reached with Game of Thrones things <laughs> that were personalized on that day. So, you know, it really was give, solving, uh, resolving, a, you know, satisfying a desire. The second one, <laughs> I love this, from Social Media Insider. The dark side of influencers, douchebags. Oh, jeez. Paul is a Disney star as well as an influencer with 8.5 million followers across YouTube, Instagram, and the like. Paul is now persona non grata in his West Hollywood neighborhood because of his preferred method of entertaining his social media audience. It involves large groups of boisterous young men, very loud noises, and the occasional destruction of property. <laughs> According to a local news broadcaster, neighbors complain that he and his crew, and inevitably there's a crew, meaning a herd of dudes who look, act, and sound just like him, are turning the neighborhood into a living hell with his stuff. 
stunts. One awesome stunt involved putting a huge pile of furniture in an empty pool and setting it on fire. Oh the my end. God. Awesome, right? Of course it is. Fire code violations aside, the real problem may be that Paul routinely gives out his physical address on social media, with the result that crowds of young, mostly female fans show up at the rental property where he lives. One neighbor told KTLA, it used to be a really nice, quiet street. Now it's just like this war zone. We're families here. We're more than happy to have them live here if they're respectful of their neighbors, but they're not. Paul frankly admits to KTLA, the neighbors hate me, and he agrees that he and his crew, there it is again, have turned the neighborhood into a circus. Then he points out, but I mean, people like going to circuses. Oh, God. <laughs> Instead, the neighbors are going to city council and the police who are also threatening to take legal action against Paul's landlord so his fans should enjoy the circus while it lasts. Awesome, bro. So I think the theme there, and this is the theme that runs through a lot of the stories we've had on the show today, is, but people like going to circuses, Tom. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, in my day... You put a bunch of furniture in a pool and you lit it on fire. You wouldn't have to. Ha no one would go down to the city council or the police. <laughs> Trust me, it would not happen again. It would they'd not. They shoot you on sight. It would not. No, there'd be stories all night long about you know Paul's dad coming out to mm -hmm. the backyard. <laughs> Dads did that then. They did. Now it people back are then. entitled. Exactly. Now, you, your YouTube star, you're entitled. I see. That, yeah, maybe the dad is making some money off all this. That's probably true. He knows what money's coming in. That's exactly. Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at Art19, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Google Play Music because of all our fabulous music. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. By the way, you can also send money. Um, if there... Oh, no, do, do did, that. Did you ever hear that there was a story, a famous guy in radio, the people listening to this who know the story won't, you know, I don't need to repeat it, but he actually made a joke about sending money and people did send checks and cash to the studio. Well, then keep and making... And here he ended up keep with making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Keep yeah, I know. Keep, hey, listen, and, and Jeff, add some Grateful Dead in at the end. I don't think we have to have copyright. Those guys didn't care one no. way or the other. Uh, they didn't, but they're, but Columbia may. Oh, if there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, the just-referenced Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com and, uh, you know, belly up to a bar near you someplace. Absolutely. For Tom Asecker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. 